0: Today on Blue 58, we're lucky to welcome the foremost voice on Packers history to the show. Cliff Crystal has just released a monumental, definitive history of the Green Bay Packers, and he was kind enough to spend a few minutes explaining how this enormous book came to be. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for this episode. Today's guest really needs no introduction, so I'm going to be quick and get out of the way and let him talk. His work speaks for itself. Cliff Crystal is the Green Bay Packers team historian, and he recently capped off a truly amazing piece of work. He has just finished and released a four-volume, 1,000-page history on the team, dating back to its origins and extending all the way through the present day. I was very interested to see how this book came together, what it means for the team, and what it can teach the rest of us about how we follow the Packers. So Cliff was generous enough to spend quite a bit of time with me talking about the book, about his process, about Packers history. I'm going to get out of the way and let you listen. It's a great time. I hope you enjoy it. The Packers have a deeper, richer history than just about any team anywhere in any sport. But it's been told by a lot of different people in a lot of different ways over a century plus now. And so you and the team have chosen to come out now with a 1,000-page work in a world where attention spans seem more or less shorter than ever. So why do this first and foremost, and then why do this project this way?
1: Well, I I think the plan, original plan, even before I started working for the Packers in 2014 was that they they were making plans to celebrate their 100th season, 100th anniversary, and as part of that, they wanted to write a book, and um, I don't know that they were aware of all the uh, falsehoods that had been printed in recent years, but um, it really had reached a point of ridiculousness, Um, and as we dug into this, and I pointed out all of these things, Um, I mean, we're not talking about things that can't be proven. Um, You know, one of the stories that started was the um, story about that uh, Packers used three Notre Dame players against uh, the Bears and that um, George Halas led the march to throw them out of the league. Um, I mean, it's all you have to do is look at the minutes of the Notre Dame athletic meeting and read newspapers across the country. And it was the game against Racine, a non-league game a week later. Uh, I mean, it just, just unbelievable. Some of the things that, uh, you know, it started in the seventies and eighties with just a few books and, and, Really, the Packers never bought into it when Lee w- Remmel was the historian. But once he left, um, others did. And, uh, I mean, it was just Connors, the whole uniform history that was sold that the Pro Football Hall of Fame bought into. Um, it was just some con artists from Canada that pitched him on the fact that he knew what their jersey history was. One, in fact, got most of them wrong.
0: So I I wanted to ask about the idea of addressing the work of people that have come before you. You've done some of that on the site, and I don't want to name names, but some people have played pretty fast and loose with the facts. So in this work and in the work that you do, how do you balance calling out specific people with just the work of saying, no, this is what the real history is?
1: Well, I didn't want to get into name-calling and point fingers in the book. I didn't think that was appropriate. I mean, I have mentioned, uh, you know, thought of it started with Larry Names' books um, in the 70s and 80s, because nobody really had written a thorough history of the Packers prior to that. I mean, believe it or not, I, I still consider Arch Ward's first book, a book that covered the history of the Packers in 1946 a classic. Uh, Now, there were issues with it because (laughs) Arch Ward and Curly Lambeau were close friends, and so Arch Ward believed pretty much everything Curly told him. And there were probably two things at play at that time. One um, was it was 25 years after the – more than 25 years after Curly had co-founded the team. So I'm sure his memory wasn't exact about every meeting, every game. And then the other issue was the fact that, as Lee Remmel always often told me, and many of Curly's players did, that he was a congenital liar. (laughs) Most of what he said was either exaggerated or a lie. So that was part of the issue, too. It's just not that, um, you know, with certain authors. the, The thing that, actually, Larry Names is the one who got me interested in Packers history when I read the first volume or two of his series, and I thought, man, this is... This is some fascinating stuff, but as a journalist, I realized as I read it, um, he would point out where there were falsehoods, as I have done, and there are plenty of them that were easily um, proven, you could easily prove, but then all he did was guess at what might have been, might've, guess at what might have happened. Uh, there was no further research other than what he had done, maybe going through the press gazettes and so forth. So, And, and when I read that as a journalist at the time working for the uh, Milwaukee Journal, it probably was at that point, um, I realized, well, I can't use any of this in my stories because nothing's substantiated here in these books. And that's what got me interested in doing my own research. And once I started doing my own research, I realized, well, this is just a mess. (laughs) But yet, like the Wisconsin State Historical Society uh, published a book not that long ago where much of uh, the source notes referenced Ames' work. So uh, it just... it does kind of surprise me that, um, like a status oracle, society wouldn't at least investigate uh, the credibility of an author's sources. Then again, uh, the Packers repeated many of those stories, too, in different places, like their 75th anniversary book and the media guide.
0: So whether it's people making stuff up or just getting stuff wrong or just, you know, how stuff evol- evolves over time— Packers history has a lot of kind of, you know, myths and tall tales in it. And I guess to a certain extent, those things kind of have their place, but they're also not not true, per se, or at all. How do you kind of respect the appeal of those things while correcting the record? Do you factor that in at all?
1: I'm sorry, what was the last part of the question?
0: How do you respect the appeal of something like the um, the kind of word of mouth history of the Packer, the tall tales, things like that, but also correcting the record? Because there is kind of that, that nostalgic appeal, I think, to the Packers sometimes, but even if that stuff isn't true.
1: Well, uh, you know, the, the old saying, you can't uh, put the toothpaste back in the tube, and that's, you know, that's part of what's at issue here. Um, you know, the, the NFL fact book, record and fact book, has been published since, I think it's 41, maybe a year earlier. 1941 uh, on an annual basis. And if not the first year within the first couple of years, three years, they have run a chronological history of the Packers or a chronological history of the NFL. And for into the 1980s, I believe it was either late seventies or eighties. I don't have that in front of me. They listed one of their entries was how the Packers got into the league and credited J.M. McClare, the younger brother of the Clare brothers, with being the uh, person who was awarded the franchise, which he was. Some point in the 70s or 80s, the NFL changed its fact book to say that it was John M. Clare, the older brother, who did have some money behind it. So I wouldn't quarrel with the fact that he gave both credit. But it was really J.M. McClare was the only representative from Green Bay at the meeting where the franchise was awarded. Um, I'm told that was because the NFL changed uh, printers or publishers or whatever, and uh, started having the fact book was printed in LA and somebody out there just decided to change it based on whatever, um, you know, that's how things started. But I, and we have gotten the NFL now to change its, Fact book back to what's accurate, but anybody that looks at that book from about 1980 or so to 2018 is going to see something incorrect. So that's that's what's at issue here. But hopefully, with this volume of books and with uh, that and that I've supported some of these argument strongly enough that people will recognize some of these what's going on here
0: i know that this is the job and and substantiating stuff is is what you do as a journalist as now the historian for the packers but this is it gets to be pretty granular stuff you're talking about minutes for the notre dame you know athletic club you're talking about you know tracking down an editing change that was made at a printing house in in los angeles who knows how long ago what is that process like for you, and, and where are you turning to substantiate your information?
1: Um, most, first of all, um, I think in most cases with these myths, I basically just spelled out my research um, and will allow the reader to decide. Um, and, and also I, there's, I think close to 40 pages of source notes. So all the source note, all the sources for this information are listed and let the reader decide what, what they think. Uh, for example, the start of the Packers that, uh, so many people have, uh, yeah. offered conjecture on what, how that, how the team was started, how it was formed, going back to, um, you know, some contend that it would started in 19 the team was formed in 1918. Uh, Some have contended that Nate Abrams formed the team, Uh, not Curly Lambeau. There's pretty clear evidence in the daily newspapers um, about when, I mean, you can find references to these early meetings. We have minutes that are in our corporate records that date to the 1920s. uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame as minutes from the league meetings going back to uh, the beginning in 1920. Um, and Notre Dame, for example, I spent a lot of time at the Notre Dame library in the archives there. And they've got letters that were exchanged back and forth between Rockne and Lambeau. And actually, um, Lambeau and the previous uh, Rockney's predecessor um, so there was a lot there's a lot of official documentation that could be found uh, at the same time um in other cases, I tried to just dis- dispel it with um with uh my research and pointing out what other sources stated and I know. For example, a lot has been written about where the Packers played their first couple of seasons. And, uh, I mean, there was a – I don't know if you remember this, but um, probably around the time right before I became a historian, uh, one of the auction sites sold a photo claiming it was the first, the original – the first known action photo of Curly Lambeau as a Packer. Well, it was an action photo from a Marinette Watertown high school football game played in Green Bay. Um, And it's pretty easy to, to prove that that auction site and they immediately, once I wrote a column about it, they immediately refunded the money. But the picture appeared, and I think it was the 1917 West High annual because the game was played in Green Bay and it was touted as a state championship. So people published the West High Annual that year. Thought it was worthy to to reprint it there.
0: If I recall correctly, that was um, one of the first. Some of the, the first...
1: stuff is pretty simple stuff.
0: If I recall correctly, that was one of the first things that you took on as Packers historian back when back when you started. I remember that piece and remember that there's some egg on their face pretty quickly, uh, having to pull that picture.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a there was a, a picture that's been often. Um, referenced as, and this is even in Packer Packer publications going back to uh, the 1960s. There's a picture of fans standing uh, along the sidelines at um, what was said to be Hagemeister Park in 1919. Well, there's numerous references in the Press-Gazette at the time, and then in later years were players in Calhoun, George Whitney Calhoun talked about there being the, the team playing in an open field with no fence or bleachers. And there's a clearly a fence behind those players. I also did come across that photo where uh, the Press Gazette ran it years later and mentioned that this was actually this was not this was while things our fans watched the game at in the beginning, but it was actually a photo from Bellevue Park. Um, you know, there's been a photo that's run in numerous books uh, identifying a celebration at the Milwaukee Road Depot here as a celebration after the 1944 uh, NFL championship. Well, two things. One, um, there were cars from 1947 and 1948 in the photo, according to the guy who's uh Cliff Lewis who had opened the automobile gallery here with a collection of cars and another source that was an authority on uh, classic cars that I discussed talked to with us talked to about this and um, and then the other issue was the photo was that they had closed that depot down temporarily and turned it into a uh, it was turned into a meat market or a, a grocery store and this actual celebration took place at the other Milwaukee road, a small depot on the west side of Green Bay. Um, So it's, um, this wasn't exactly brain surgery. It was just what I did. It was just a lot of research.
0: Speaking to that research, even prior to starting this book, your body of work on Packers history probably stands up against just about anybody, but going through a thousand pages of work, and you know, the tens of thousands of pages of source notes and stuff beyond that, that you, you went through, there had to be some things in the history that surprised you. What was something that you learned in this process that stood out?
1: So many things. I, I think, uh, I learned a lot in doing my research just for this book. Um, I don't claim to have been an, an authority on Packers history, uh, prior to, um, the time I retired as a newspaper writer in 2007, I started doing some more research in the past, in the previous 10 years, and it covered the team for most of my 36 years in the newspaper business. But I had not thoroughly researched Packers history until uh, the late 1990s. And so, I mean, I, for example, and, and and even as I was writing the book, I didn't realize... Uh, how small the crowds were in Green Bay and how um, the Packers' survival had to do a lot more with a small group of uh, wealthy businessmen, what they called the old money in Green Bay, than it did with, uh, you know, Joe Fan. Uh, they really, Packers didn't really reach out, and this team wasn't the, – the, the, the stock sale in 1935 for example where there were only like 110 shareholders and all they really reached out to were local businesses very few individuals bought stock in the first uh in the first sale of, of what became the Green Bay Packers corporation in 1935 after the original corporation went into receivership um but um so I that's something I wasn't aware of I wasn't aware of how close it came how fiercely Lambeau fought to turn the Packers into a private corporation uh, in late 1949 and 1950, and how close that – how apparently close it came to, uh, to happening. Um, you know, a lot of the Don Hudson stuff. I was always suspicious, for example, of the uh, – of the postmark how the Packers, uh, signed Don Hudson. And it was, uh, based on a postmark that was, uh, earlier than the one on the Brooklyn Dodgers on the envelope where the Brooklyn Dodgers sent in the contract. They claimed they had signed. Um, that always seemed like a suspicious story to me.
0: And it certainly was.
1: And it was built on, again, I, I can't tell you, even the pro football researchers, I've, I've found numerous, References and uh, stories in the Coffin Corner, and uh, by writers who are members of that organization, how Lambeau was at the Rose Bowl. Well, he wasn't at the Rose Bowl. He uh, he went to the East White Shrine game. Two games are played at the same time on New Year's Day, and Lambeau was sending back telegrams, uh, more or less, which were more or less almost a diary of his week couple weeks on the 10 days to two weeks on the West coast where he was in San Francisco, Palo Alto uh, was I think where was where one of the teams trained and Berkeley was the other. And he was sent back to the press Gazette. Uh, what in essence was a diary of his, uh, what he was doing out there. And then the day after on January 2nd, he sent back something saying he had watched East West Shrine game, not the Rose bowl, and virtually the kickoffs of the two games are like 15 minutes apart. And what's like 400 miles between LA and San Francisco, no television. So um, a lot of that stuff, again, as I said, is barely, you can uh, recite mounds of evidence to show that the original story uh, wasn't what, <laughs> really wasn't what happened.
0: Uh, with a with a history as big as the Packers is, some people are bound to fall through the cracks, especially when there are big big names like Lambeau and Lombardi and Favre and Starr and uh, you know the you know the list. But I'm curious your perspective: is there a person or player in Packers history that you think still needs more credit or attention or something like that?
1: Well, yeah, there's a couple in there that were involved at the beginning. Um, One was John Kittle, an attorney uh, who really played a lead role with um, Andrew Turnbull, one of the owners of the Press Gazette, in creating the uh, Community Corporation, uh, the Green Bay Football Corporation, in 1923 that saved the franchise. And and that stock sale did reach out to the fans. And uh, for 5 bucks, fans could purchase stock and tickets to the game season tickets. Um, and Kittle was the one who wrote the original articles presumably. That, here again, I can't, I wasn't there to observe John Kittle uh, drafting the original articles of incorporation corporation that were really very similar to what the Green Bay pa- the articles were for the Green Bay Packers Corporation 12 years later in 1935. But most history books have given Gerald Clifford credit for that and talked about how he was the member of the Hundred five Five who created and drafted the original articles. Well, he did of the Green Bay Packers Corporation in 1935, but he didn't in 1923. That was John Kittle, and he had played a lead role in um, creating uh, interest among the, the local, People of Green Bay to get behind the football team and uh, and save it after a disastrous 1922 season, when the Green Bay Football Club, with Curly Lambeau as president, uh, ran the team and uh, was broke. And as soon as the season was over, um, as soon as the 22 season was over, uh, the NFL took the, Took the franchise away from Lambeau, and put it in the name of the uh, proposed public corporation, which had not yet even been formed. Because the NFL did a lot, both Joe Carr and Bert Bell especially, did a lot to keep the Packers alive. Um, in cases like that, where they, um, for example, during receivership, one of the things I learned, during Packers were in receivership for 17 months in the early 1930s after the fan fell out of the stands and they were sued and their insurance company had gone belly up during the depression and, uh, the NFL and the Packers in the, in the minutes for both transferred that franchise into Lee Joanne's name. Um, so in essence, the Packers were actually owned by an individual owner for 17 months. Um, Lee Joannis, who and at the time the Joannis family owned uh, Joannis Wholesale Grocery, which was the largest wholesale grocer in Wisconsin. So he was probably here Turnbull were probably one of the two would have been the wealthiest, no doubt, of the uh, of the Hungry Five. And the Hungry Five really did not get involved until Clifford. Became active with the organization, which wasn't until 1929. So a lot, all these references to the Hungry Five saving the team in 1925 are basically inaccurate. Um, four of the members were involved, but the fifth was really Kittle and maybe maybe some others. Uh, there were references all to also to the owner of Schweiger Drugs and um, the owner of the Beaumont Hotel. Uh, being heavily involved in the beginning. So, though, Carl Witteberg was the owner of the uh, the Beaumont. Um, and then there's Cornelius Neil Murphy. He was the uh, Underwood typewriter salesman in Green Bay in 1920, uh, the first year the Packers had played on a, uh open field, no fence, no bleachers, couldn't charge admission. And Murphy realized before the 1920 season, that without a fence, the Packers wouldn't be able to make money and survive. So he's the guy that, that proposed, he became manager of the team in 1920. He proposed uh, building a fence, got the uh, Hagemeister Realty Company, which owned the property behind it, uh, got the city to okay it, and had this ingenious idea of asking the fans to build it because there was no money. The team had no money. So he got the fans to build it so he could charge them admission to watch the games. Um, and that was critical to the Packers' survival. Uh, again, that goes back to that picture I talked about at a high school football game in 1917 and all the references to Hagemeister Park and the stadium at Hagemeister Park. Um, there were like five different stadiums and the Packers played, um, on th- I, I can't say three different locations, but, uh, three different backdrops to their games in just the four years they played there. Um, and again, it all goes back to uh, the fact that the minor league baseball, Green Bay had a minor league baseball team. Uh, I think it was until 1914, and that was the stadium where the city teams played, and the East-West game was played for years. And then it, it would, but it was torn down in um, the December of 1917 or 18. Um, it's in the book, um, and uh, and so there was no no stadium there that first year. And and Murphy's the guy that put a fence around it in 1920 and then uh, during the season had bleachers built about 1500 bleachers built. So the fans are a place to sit. So he was critical to their survival. Um, And then uh, players, there's a lot of them. Larry Craig is a prime example. He is, uh, he joined the Packers in 1939 and was instrumental in them winning the championship that year. And Larry Craig, uh, was a blocking back, and when Lambeau signed him, that allowed him to move Hudson, the defensive back from defensive end, in 1939, and had a big played a big part in the Packers uh, winning the what would have been their fifth NFL championship that year. And interestingly. Um, Larry Craig never made an all pro team. Uh, he played 11 years. His nickname was Superman. He was the toughest, strongest of the Packers during the, uh, during the 1940s, probably. And because he was listed as a quarterback the blocking back position in Lambeau's Notre Dame box at the time. And uh, so he never threw a pass. He played quarterback through 1946, so that's uh, eight years, and never threw a single pass. So he never got any votes in all pro, yet Sammy Baugh, Hall of Fame quarterback, Said that Larry Craig was the best defensive end he faced in his 16 best pass rusher he faced in his 16 years in the NFL, and Bob Waterfield, another Hall of Fame quarterback, said Craig was one of the two best defensive ends in the league when he played, uh, and the other being a teammate of Waterfield's. So he was just and Ba also said that Craig was the best blocking back during those 16 years he played. You could probably make a case that Larry Craig uh, deserves consideration for the Pro Football Hall of Fame and yet never made an all-pro team. And then there's Vern Llewellyn, uh, the key to the 29-31 to 31 championships. I think you could argue that Vern Llewellyn might have been the greatest player in Packers history. And yet he's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame either. Although Johnny Blood, when the first class was announced that included Lambeau, Blood, Hudson and Hubbard, um, Johnny Blood said that uh, Llewellyn should have been in before him and Hubbard. And Charlie Matice, who played from quarterback for the Packers, native of Green Bay, who played at Green Bay West High School, uh, played from 22 to 26 with the Packers, and then he sat on the board of directors until uh, I think he became emeritus around 1980. Didn't miss a game for 50 years. Uh, He claimed Llewellyn was the best of the old-time Packers. So there were others who felt that way uh, with a lot more credibility and uh, who were eyewitnesses. I never saw Llewellyn play, obviously.
0: I think it's easy to think of Packers history as an old thing. Uh, here we are talking about guys that played in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and Packers obviously have a lot of history dating back to the 20s and 30s and 40s and beyond. But recent history is history too, uh, and especially as it intersects with your own career as a journalist, how do you cover the more current things? How do you explore those eras that are pretty, I mean, the media landscape has obviously changed. The The ground is pretty well trodden at this point. How do you cover things where the media landscape is just saturated?
1: Well, I would agree. And a lot of um, a lot of what I wrote, especially about the last um, the last chapter, which is the decade from 2010 on, I leaned heavily on a lot of things that were written by some of the prominent uh, sports writers of today, um, and recognized that you know credited them with uh, with the points I made. Um, thankful. I mean, Thankfully, Ron Wolf and Bob Harlan were unbelievably generous with their time. So I probably conducted a, I think I conducted, if not 20, close to 20 interviews with both of them. And some of them were extensive interviews, hours long. Um, and so I got a lot of insight from them. Um, I was still covering, still working and covering the team in 2007 as a uh, journalist. Uh, so I leaned on my own observations over the 36 years or so that I had, uh, covered the team or at least was writing about it at times. Um, and I've been a reporter all my life. So thankfully Mark Murphy was extremely supportive that if this was going to be a definitive history, it also had to be an unvarnished history. And so, um, I was pretty much able to write it as I saw it. And I think there are things in there that, uh, especially in the 70s and 80s, um, when I was covering the team, that a lot of people aren't going to know. And then a lot of things in the 90s and 2000s, thanks to uh, Bob Harlan and Ron Wolf, and before that, Dick Korek shared a lot with me. Uh, for example, I just wrote something on our website about the chapter, the 1980s chapter, and how the Packers were one of nine or ten teams, depending on um, how you count them, invited to Barry Sanders' workout after he was ruled eligible for the draft in 89, in early April. They were invited to his workout in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and their scout didn't show up. Or if he did show up, he was late and probably missed most of the workout. Um, and I don't believe that was ever written before. So I didn't. I. I. Didn't stop being a reporter when I started writing this book. Let's put it that way.
0: I know there's a lot of interest among fans and people like me who do this at, at an amateur level. Um, and I'm asking you actually to repeat a question here because I wrote you at Packers.com back in 2017, and you were very gracious enough to answer it, but I want to see if you can repeat something of the answer uh, here. If someone like me or someone who's just a fan of the team wants to start researching Packers history, how would you advise someone like me or just someone doing this for fun to proceed?
1: Well, I made mention of this in the acknowledgments at the back of Volume 4 of the book. Um there is a rich repository of uh of Packer history. And it's in the pages of the Green Bay Press Gazette and the two Milwaukee papers, which started covering the team, Sentinel and Journal in the twenties. And it's from George Calhoun, John Walter, Art Daly, Lee Remmel, Bud Lee. Uh like all newspaper men, they made mistakes. Um They made references that uh, might be misleading, but no newspaper in the country um, covered the Packers more thoroughly than the Green Bay Press-Gazette. And that was certainly true through the first 50 years of the team's existence. Um, It's all there. And that's what I did. I basically... uh, I have read every issue of the Green Bay Press Gazette from January 1, 1919 uh, through 1962 when I started reading the paper regularly as a a teenager. I also went through uh, either the Journal or Sentinel, one one paper or the other, and went through the sports sections uh, from 1919 through uh, 1950. So, uh, it's like our daily, for example, and one of the reasons it was important, I believe to research both the Milwaukee papers and the green Bay papers was because like our daily offered great detail in his story. What time the team arrived at precise times the team arrived on, uh, at the train depot or what time it left on a trip to Chicago and things like that. Um, you know, where meetings were held and just little details that were just so helpful to me. Uh, yet art was, wrote, not took a positive approach to everything he wrote, including the 56 to nothing lost to the Colts in 1958. Whereas the journal, especially with Oliver keekley uh, cover the team and with a much more negative bent. So you get a balance between the two, and I think that was important that I read both for that reason. Um, but I don't know that there's any other place. I, Mark Beach did an outstanding job on his book, The People's Team, that was published just a couple years ago. Um, but if you really want to do the research, the the best place to go is to the Green Bay Press-Gazette and the the Milwaukee newspapers. The Mm -hmm. only newspaper I found that I felt covered their team going back to the early 20s as thoroughly as uh, the Press-Gazette was the Rock Island artists. I found great detail about, for example, the the effort to throw the Packers out of the league in 1921-22 in that newspaper. Wrote in detail. In fact, it said that Walter Flanagan, the manager of the uh, Rock Island team, was the one who uh, led the charge to to throw the Packers out of the league. I mean, Hallis—that's the other thing you find in both Hallis's autobiography and in the minutes of the NFL meeting. He was fighting to save his own franchise, his owner, his his spot in the league. That was when they were in the transition from moving from Decatur to Chicago and uh, Hart, he had signed a deal with one of the Hartley brothers. Uh, who one was serving as an agent for his brother who was an All-American at Ohio State and a big draw at the time. And so the, the Hartley brother who was the agent contended that he had owned a third of the Bears franchise, uh, Staley's franchise at the time. And he fiercely it was a fierce battle at the league meeting where the Packers got kicked out of the league for using those ineligible players uh, and Pallis wrote in his bio autobiography that much more time was spent on that debating that topic and his battle to to retain ownership than was spent on covering the Packers situation.
0: I think people would understand if he said, "This is it, this is my magnum opus." I'm done, but I don't get the sense you're about to abruptly write off in the sunset. So my last question for you is what's next? How do you approach Packers history now that you've written what the team itself says is is a definitive history of the team?
1: Um, We haven't really gotten into, I've got some time off coming and we really haven't gotten into a deep discussion about that. I sense that, I mean, I'm, Work in a business where people get fired all the time um, and get replaced. And I, I, um, one of my favorite quotes in the book was when Ron Wolf uh, announced his retirement and said that uh, graveyards are filled with people who thought they were replaceable. So I'm under no illusions here. Um, the Packers want me to stay on. I probably will on a reduced, uh, you know, part-time basis um and we'll see. I mean, I've been spending the last couple of weeks since I finished the book filing my clippings that I had I, I had stacks and stacks of papers that I finally reached a point where I just didn't have time to refile them <laughs> as I was writing. And so I'm going through them now and refiling them and I, I, I there's at least a handful of things that I found now already that I thought, boy, I wish I had a, a, notice this in the stack of papers cause I would have included it in the book. Um, I, that to me was the joy of writing the book, The just the, so many unbelievable stories. Uh, I, I know that I probably wrote in too much detail, especially about the early years and it's going to bore some people, but that there will be a lot of others who just enjoy the, the rich, this team's rich history. And, uh, and find that they're, they learn a lot of things, hopefully. So what am I going to do? Um, hopefully get some time off and uh, then probably work on a part-time basis where I can also uh, get away for time with uh, grandkids and kids and also uh, do some traveling.
0: A huge thanks to Cliff for spending some time with me today. Incredibly generous. Go buy his book, The Greatest Story in Sports at the Packers Pro Shop. I can tell you, as a person who used to work in publishing, you need to support with your dollars the things that you want to see more of. So if you want to see the Packers spend more time producing things like this, working on their own history, you need to put your money where your mouth is. I am doing that. I have done that. My copy is in the mail and coming. I hope you will do the same because it's phenomenal. That's all I've got for you in this episode. I really, really appreciate you listening in. If you enjoyed this, please share it. Get as many people to listen to it as you can because, like, way beyond anything that I can ever do for you, this is what is going to help us become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.